This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk, of course, about the coronavirus pandemic. President going back to the White House. Doctors came out, explained how he's doing. They say he doesn't have a fever, oxygen levels normal, doesn't have any noticeable breathing problems. Of course, they also still did not explain results of his lung scans or what specifically is being done to keep White House staffers safe. So we have a lot of questions. And by the way, the president tweeted that he's feeling really good. And for people, he says not to be afraid of COVID or to let it dominate their lives. This comes, by the way, as the death toll in the U.S. is now around 210,000. Part of the treatment, this steroid dexamethasone, which comes with some pretty wild side effects. We'll look into how that impacts people. He was treated uh, pretty aggressively with experimental drugs. Can we all be treated the same way? Yeah, if I walk in the hospital and say, give me what he had, am I going to get it? No, you especially know. (laughs) We've heard you before. (laughs) We're turning you around at the door. Uh, It's looking more and more likely that the White House uh, gathering to announce Amy Coney Barrett says the Supreme Court nominee was a super spreader event. A lot of people from that who were there, they are infected. So we'll look at the outbreak at the White House. Does all this show that we have a long way to go to figure this whole thing out? Well, we'll get to that, but we'll start with Dr. Robert Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco. So, doctor, what do you make of uh, what the president says, that he's feeling good, don't be afraid, this is the best he's felt in 20 years? Well, in terms of the therapies, uh, two out of the three of them would be ones that would be standard therapy in any hospital in Los Angeles if you came in with COVID, if you met criteria for having a, a fairly severe disease, having a low oxygen level, and uh, and it, it, they might have based some of it based on the CAT scan, which uh, whose results they're not revealing. So that's pretty standard stuff. Uh, the monoclonal antibodies are not standard, they're not approved, they are not generally available to uh, to anyone. So that that's clearly uh, something that the rest of us could not have gotten. The early evidence about them are, are is pretty promising. So I, you know, I think it's a reasonable decision to have asked for them. It's sort of an ethically interesting decision that, that uh, to give them. In terms of um, that tweet, I'm surprised that he's leaving the hospital. He he is. Uh, he still is at high risk in a number of ways. He's not out of the woods yet from everything that's been publicly reported. And there is a chance that he will deteriorate and need to go back. Uh, he's going to the White House. He's not going to my house or your house. So there's some medical facilities available to him. But knowing what we know about him, I would say that it would be highly unusual that we would be allowing uh, the average patient to leave the hospital today. So what can you glean from the treatment plan? Because to do them back to back, um, some people are saying, okay, well, it's a kitchen sink approach. You do everything you can. He is the president. You got to give him all the best stuff there is. The other idea that's floating around is that, like you said, the criteria for some of this, especially remdesivir, is a more moderate to severe case. So th- this was not a mild case like they're saying. Yeah, the, the pieces don't uh, don't all fit together uh, neatly. Uh, you know, that what we have heard in the press conferences, including the one today, is is that it was relatively mild. He only, his oxygen level went down only slightly a couple of times, came back up quickly. Uh, we don't know anything about the CAT scan uh, other than it showed what uh, what was, quote, expected. I have no idea what that means. And so if that were all true, then he largely doesn't meet the criteria for the use of either the remdesivir 
or the dexamethasone. The remdesivir doesn't have a whole lot of harms associated with it. So you could make the argument that that given his risk factors, it's not an unreasonable thing to do. The dexamethasone, I'm assuming they debate, debated long and hard about because there is some evidence that giving it to someone who is not that sick and giving it very early in the course of illness may actually cause more harm than benefit. And so, uh, you know, it's certainly, you know, as a VIP, as the president, you want to do everything you can, as we, I think, should want to do with every single patient. But in the effort to do that, you don't want to do things where the evidence doesn't support it or even where the evidence indicates that what you're doing might uh, cause net harm. So it's just very tricky to sort this all out because uh, the picture that we've gotten from the physicians is uh, is quite incomplete. Well, and, and I was going to say to get back to the, the sort of average Joe or Jane who finds him or herself in the hospital and perhaps at the same age group, 70, 74, 75, that kind of thing, uh, with COVID, uh, while these drugs, except for, as you pointed out, the highly experimental cocktail of antibodies, while the other two are available, um, it isn't the kind of thing where they could just, upon check-in, say to their doctors, I want these drugs, can they? Well, people may say that, and they, will they get it? the internet, they frequently do. Yeah, they but, read will, the literature, but, but they, will they get it? They, they, they come in and they, they, they tell us what they'd like. It's our job to take that and listen. I mean, it, it needs uh, medicine needs to be a collaborative enterprise. We should listen to our patients and try to uh, work out something that that is in sync with their own beliefs and desires uh, while is medically appropriate. And so, uh, uh, in, you know, in in the case in this case, um, you know, one gets the sense that that the patient had strong preferences about various things, that the physicians were put in a difficult position, being both the physician and also uh, taking care of your employer. And, uh, you know, who knows whether that tilted their decisions uh, a little bit. I'm guessing it did around the question of discharge, because that one doesn't seem to me to be a close call. Uh, you know, from the, from all of the data that has been publicly reported, if you plug that in to risk calculators for patients with COVID, uh, the president had and probably still has, maybe it's gone down a little bit, but something like a one in five chance of mortality of dying uh, within 30 days. So it, and, and he's not out of the woods yet. One in five, yes, is, pretty, back one, one in five is pretty, is pretty high. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 but with each passing day, uh, if he truly is fine and stable, that goes down some, and it's probably below that now, but, but, you know, it's still significant and there's still a chance in the next three, four, five days that he could, uh, get quite sick and need to get transferred back. Uh, you know, he's got a helicopter, the average person doesn't, so, uh, and he's in the White House and they can take care of him. But it still seems to me that for the average patient in his position, we would be keeping them for observation for at least another couple of days. Dr. Robert Waxer, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine, University of California, San Francisco. President Trump, given the steroid dexamethasone, it is to help reduce inflammation when people have a respiratory illness like COVID-19, but it does come with what can be some, you know, pretty heavy side effects. Including hallucinations, grandiose delusions. Michelle Dauber, law school professor, sociologist at Stanford. She was treated with dexamethasone after brain surgery. Michelle, what was your experience? So the first symptom that I had was sleeplessness and a feeling of boundless energy. Um, and I should say these are common side effects of this medication. Um, and they're listed as common. Um, I didn't sleep at all the first night after I had had surgery and, um, my surgeon warned me that dexamethasone had some pretty severe 
um, psychiatric side effects um, that could affect mood and to be careful, particularly about thinking that I was fine, um, that the drug would make me think that I was um, doing better than I actually was. And when he or she had that conversation with you and said, look, this is what to look out for, was that the kind of thing where you go, okay, yeah, maybe I'll have side effects, maybe I won't? Did you take them seriously at the time? And then when you started to experience what this drug could do, what were you thinking then? Well, I, of course, took everything my doctor said seriously. But the problem with the side effects of this drug are that they make you think that you are fine. Um, they sort of induce a sense of just, um, I guess, mania is the way that they describe it. Um, you know, I wanted to go outside. I wanted to go swimming. I wanted to go for a run. I mean, I just kind of couldn't believe how great I felt. Um, and... Um, I felt like I was extremely sharp, but in fact, I wasn't. And that was frightening. Um, so for example, um, when I got home from the hospital, I decided, you know, not only was I going to clean my house, but I was going to do all my cabinets and all my <laughs> drawers and, um, maybe remodel my kitchen. Um, I just had some very distorted, um, thinking around how, much I could handle and how much I could do. I went for a run, um, which was totally inappropriate. Um, uh, and then I would crash and I would just have this overwhelming sense of doom. And all of this, I should say, is validated by doctors. It's part of the warnings on the medication. Um, you can read about it on the internet. Um, but so, here's but here's the thing, Michelle. I, I I think that some people listening to you might might think, well, you know, it doesn't sound that bad. I mean, you know, she just got out of what I presume was was major surgery. Uh, she was feeling really good. You know, you said you wanted to like redo your entire house and go out for for a swim and a jog. And on the surface, that sounds just great. But here's my question: If you were say, I don't know, president of the United States, would having these kinds of side effects, in your view, pose some sort of danger? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, they were dangerous to me because I needed to be resting. Um, I had just had, you know, a major brain surgery, so I should not have been doing any of those things. Um, I had distorted perceptions, distorted moods, and, um, you know, was irritable and couldn't sleep, and all of that was bad. So it was bad in my case, but it would have been much worse. I mean, you know, it, had I had real responsibility for um, anything, let alone, uh, you know, being president of the United States. Um, I think in that case, that kind of distorted judgment, distorted thinking, mood disorders, um, you know, feelings of, you know, uh, invincibility and mania, um, all of which are documented side effects of this medication would be dangerous, not only to me, but to the entire world. How long to wean yourself off of it? Um, I, well, I started weaning off of it pretty quickly, but it's still took, um, you know, two weeks, I had a, like a five day or seven day course at the, you know, sort of full level. And then it takes a while, you know, you can't just stop taking it, um, is my understanding. Of course, I'm not a doctor. I'm just speaking of my experience. Michelle Dauber, law professor, sociologist, Stanford University, uh, experience with dexamethasone. So let's say you got infected with COVID. Now we hope you don't, but 
let's say for the sake of argument that you do, can you walk into the hospital and simply demand dexamethasone, remdesivir, or a monoclonal antibody? Might not be that easy for regular people. Dr. Lewis Kaplan, critical care surgeon, specialist at the University of Pennsylvania, president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. So, doctor, I mean, I don't have a helicopter to get to the hospital, so it's going to take me some more time. But when I do get there, if I'm moderately ill, I might get the remdesivir, but probably not the experimental drug, the antibodies, right? Well, I think you have it exactly right. It is indeed experimental, but it's just part of the melange of medications that the president has received many of which are commonly used, uh, some of which are uncommonly used and perhaps not always used at the same time. Well, and, and, and the, I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. The, the standout from all of this is the antibody cocktail because it is still under investigation. And so if you showed up at the hospital, unless you were enrolled in a clinical trial, you're not getting that. So how does, well, I kind of know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. How does the president of the United States, is it just because who he is that within the space of three days, he's gotten the uh, the cocktail, the, the experimental antibody cocktail he's been started on? I think it's a five-day regimen of remdesivir, which was a, a, a pretty powerful antiviral medication and still only under emergency of uh, authorization, I believe, from the FDA. Uh, and now, of course, also dexamethasone, which, as you know, is a pretty powerful steroid, which he's also still on. That's a lot of stuff. And, and I wouldn't be getting all of that at once if I were sick, would I? Well, you might get most of that. Let's put this in a framework that makes sense. Let's start with remdesivir. Early in the illness that you get from SARS-CoV-2, the virus that creates COVID-19, the disease, we try and direct our therapies against the virus. So remdesivir up front for those that are sick makes tremendous sense. Later in the course of that disease, when you're no longer focused on the virus, but rather your body's response to the virus, where there's lots of inflammation, Dexamethasone is a powerful steroid. It is an anti-inflammatory. And so that the sequence of remdesivir leading to dexamethasone makes a lot of sense. But there are patients who have early in their course both problems with the virus and inflammation. We've recently identified the same kind of syndrome in adults that we identified in kids with lots of inflammation. So you may get remdesivir and dexamethasone all at the same time. I'll tell you that I just finished taking care of a patient just like that. The rest of the medications that he received, melatonin, we routinely prescribe that for sleep hygiene. It helps people to sleep in a very busy, noisy ICU environment. Aspirin, well, I, I'm on aspirin. I've been on aspirin for decades. It's very good continuation therapy for people that have, let's say, coronary disease. Famotidine or Pepsid, you can even buy that over the counter. Many people take that for reflux disease, but we also use it routinely for people that are on the ventilator. It helps to prevent ulcers in your stomach from all of the stress. Zinc and vitamin D, we do use those, vitamin D for people that have vitamin D deficiency, and zinc is helpful for wound repair, especially if you've been operated on by a plastic surgeon. They're deeply invested in zinc quite commonly. <laughs> so you could see all of these medications being used in patients in an ICU, 
that had COVID disease, needed continuation therapy, and had some deficiencies. You just don't see that antibody cocktail applied in the same space unless you're in a clinical trial. So it raises the question, how did the president get that? Right? He is the sitting head of state. Right. And therefore, we don't have the, the ability to see exactly what his doctor saw. And many times, patients are treated based upon what you see in front of you. All those clinical trials where we say, well, we don't have evidence for that. Many of the patients that are right in front of your eyes, well, they're never in the trial. The trial is very specific. Only certain kinds of patients are included. Many are excluded. And therefore, we extrapolate from the data we get. We make a, a best judgment about what we know regarding how things work and what is wrong with the patient in front of you. Yeah. Dr. Lewis Kaplan there, University of Pennsylvania doctor. Thanks. So you'll get most of the Trump, but not the full Trump. Coming up after this short break is a nice little White House gathering to blame for all this. This whole outbreak at the White House may have started at the big event when President Trump introduced Amy Coney Barrett as his newest Supreme Court nominee. Yeah, did this turn into a super spreader, the perfect super spreader event? And uh, could it have been prevented? Christopher Moore, professor of computer science, physics, mathematics at the Santa Fe Institute, models the dynamics of super spreader events. Christopher, let's just start with the basics. What is a super spreader event? You know, the good news about this disease, if there is any good news, is that the average number of new cases created by a sick person, the average number of new people that person infects is not that big. If every, if every sick person infected two people, each of them infected two people and so on, you would see this doubling, this exponential growth, one, two, four, eight, sixteen, And indeed, we saw that kind of doubling every couple of days in the early stages of the epidemic. For a while now, the average number has been around one. So it's been kind of bubbling along, not going away, not exploding exponentially either. But the problem is that there are still these flare-ups, these clusters, which can hit communities very hard. And these happen because in some of the cases, perhaps 10 or 20% of the cases, a single case can balloon into 10, 20, or even 100. And you know, there you, you mentioned a couple of famous examples. Another one was a chorus rehearsal where people were indoors and, you know, they cared about each other. They provided hand sanitizer and so on. And yet over the course of a couple of hours, one case ballooned into about 50 and about three quarters of the people present got infected. Now, what happened in the Rose Garden, you know, at that house you mentioned in the D.C. area um, which I, I hear it's on the market, actually. So, <laughs> and I mean, why are you interested in buying, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, okay, people were out outdoors. That's better than indoors, but they were still right next to each other. And when you look at the photos, you see that the vast majority of them were not wearing masks, I guess, because the photo op was the most important part about being there. And it's frustrating because we know how to prevent these super spreading events. We know that if you maintain distance from each other and if you wear a mask, that you can really cut those down. And frankly, if everybody was following those guidelines, then we'd be making a lot more progress on this disease. But to me, the other really ironic thing here is that a lot of these super spreading events and a lot of these clusters have hit 
particular communities in our country very hard, including sometimes low-income communities and communities of color. Across the country, if you're African-American, then you are two to four times as likely to have gotten this disease than if you're white. Here in New Mexico, where I live, if you're Native American, you are nine times as likely to have caught this disease than if you're white. And so these disparities happen because a lot of people don't have, you know, some people have more choices than others, right? If you're a transit worker, it is hard to avoid getting exposed to a lot of people. If you're an inmate or a guard in a jail, it's very hard to maintain distance and maintain hygiene. And there have been terrible outbreaks in a lot of jails all across the country. If you work in a meat packing plant where you're required to work right next to your colleagues on a fast moving assembly line, it is hard for you to avoid this kind of event. Yeah. And if you live in a small multifamily home, if you don't have access to drinking water, so it's hard to wash your hands all the time and so on. So the irony is this disease has really hit certain communities harder than others. But the folks there in the Rose Garden, they have all the choices in the world. Well, and, they have all the resources to in that the world. point, there was also and a, this a, happened to them really by choice. Yeah, and, there was a second choice there, too, because... They have the Rose Garden ceremony, and then there are pictures from actually groups splintering off and going to the post-event inside the White House, inside the 200-year-old the house, which is the number one yeah. thing not to do. Right. You know, and I'm, I mean, we hear now that the president might be getting discharged today. I'm happy for him that he had a mild case, that he only needed a little bit of oxygen, that he only needed to be hospitalized for a couple of days. That's great. But 210,000 of his fellow Americans have died from this disease in many cases because they didn't have access to the latest experimental treatments and an army of doctors and the best health care and all of that. So when he tweets, hey, you know, don't be scared of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Well, you know, believe me, I am desperate to go have a drink at a bar and go hang out with my friends and have the schools reopen, I'm as desperate for those things as the next person. But it's not rocket science at this point. We know how to prevent these super spreading events. And if we did a better job of it, we would be much closer to controlling this epidemic. Christopher Moore, professor, computer science, physics, and mathematics at the Santa Fe Institute. President Trump tweeted that people should not be afraid of COVID and should not let it dominate their lives, but it's hard to do that when millions of people have been infected in the U.S. and about 210,000 are dead, the United States now averaging about 40,000 new cases a day as of now. Is the president downplaying this? Dr. Asha George, executive director of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Doctor, 40,000 new cases a day. That's the baseline. And if we start to go up, that's where we're headed up from. And it's not good. Right. It's not a good place to be. And, you know, keeping in keeping with the stats you just mentioned uh, for overall cases, you have to think that uh, or remember that it's what we see needs to be multiplied by six or seven times. So it's not really 20 or 30,000 cases or 40,000 cases a day. It's really more like 140,000 to 280,000 cases. It's just that we're not seeing them all because not everybody's getting tested. A lot of those tests are still returning false negative results and so forth. And you're absolutely right. Uh, we're about to go back inside. We're about to be hit with seasonal influenza. And, uh, you know, we haven't changed a lot about how we live inside our own homes. 
Um, if it's true that getting fresh air and sunshine is helpful, uh, we're about to go into a phase where we're not going to get a lot of fresh air and sunshine. Um, and it's not necessarily going to be uh, safer for us to be inside more often. You know, um, you deal, of course, with, because uh, it's in your title, you deal with biodefense. And and I, I can't help but thinking, if, if I were a, a foreign adversary and I wanted to really do as much harm as possible to Americans, what better way than to send out a message, don't be afraid of COVID. Go ahead, live your life. Uh, don't let it dominate you. Well, I, I, I don't know about sending that message, but I do know that um, when it comes to the adversary, you know, they're watching us just as much as we're watching our, uh, our own enemies overseas. And what we've demonstrated with COVID-19 is not a rosy picture. Uh, instead, what we've demonstrated is that we're very vulnerable, very vulnerable to a naturally occurring disease that we have experienced in the past and that we saw coming and for which we were not prepared. If, if from a military perspective, if you were going to attack another country with a biological weapon, this would be the time to do it because we're so obviously vulnerable and stretched and our supply chains are weak and we can't get everything we need. Do we end up with another winter of lockdowns instead of the spring? It's just the winter this time? I think we need to see what happens. You know, um, I think people were very, very afraid as we were going into September and the beginning of influenza season uh, that we were just going to get slammed with influenza and COVID and pneumonia and whatever else. Uh, that hasn't happened. I think we're we're, we're doing okay in that regard, but we are far from out of the woods. We still have uh, the colder months ahead of us, November, December, January. Uh, we don't know if either influenza or COVID-19 are going to mutate and create even worse strains for us to have to deal with. Um, but, you know, for now, I think, I think we're doing okay. That said, uh, you know, we have economic considerations here, too. We're not going to be able to keep everybody locked down endlessly and keep sending people back and forth and back and forth. We need to get that vaccine. We need to get some therapeutics. We need to get people to be as careful as they can be. And, uh, you know, that's the only way we're going to get out of endless lockdowns and, um, you know, people being unable to get back to their normal way of life. Dr. Asha George, Executive Director, the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Doctor, thanks. The virus may have originated in China, but more Americans blame the U.S. government for the crisis here than China or any other country. A new poll by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy and the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research shows 56% of Americans say the U.S. government has a great deal or quite a bit of responsibility for the situation we all find ourselves in. The poll was done before President Trump tested positive for the virus. Thanks as always for listening. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. By the way, a little word of wisdom. If you find yourself having to go to the hospital because of COVID, buy yourself a helicopter. It gets you there a lot faster. <laughs>